0: With Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 150 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? i'm doing well hey and congratulations episode 150 oh this yeah is a milestone of some sort <laughs> oh
1: so. i yeah i've been mean, halfway to 200 so i i'd consider well, that a halfway milestone. to 300 actually that's yeah. correct <laughs> halfway to 300 and only 50 more to 200 the next big hundred milestone Mm-hmm, mm-hmm you figured out what I meant to say anyway that's right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so did
0: so I guess uh, some of the big news this week is the SpaceX launch that happened
1: over the weekend. did you get a chance to watch that? Yeah I was uh you know I was one of the many people on Wednesday kind of watching the clock in the middle of my work day mm-hmm. and I took a break at I, I had it playing in my in the background while I was working so I could kind of stay up to date. And, you know, I wanted to watch them in in their capsule as they're getting ready and everything going on with the countdown. And so then at 4.20, I was like, okay, I'm going to go downstairs and watch it on my big TV so I can see it properly and then also, you know, run outside. And if it's clear enough, we can see launches from our house. And so by the time I got up out of my seat and walked downstairs and turned on the TV they had already scrubbed it oh. in that short time. So that short was time. at the 16 minute mark I yeah. think. Yeah, it was no it was even closer than that. It was like 8 minutes oh, was or, it? or it was oh, okay. yeah, it was really close. So um, so yeah, that was that was annoying but then on on Saturday actually we had to Kylie's friend who was with her family Kind of just about 15 miles south of Canaveral. Um, it, it was her birthday, so we drove out to drop off her birthday present, and then we uh, we watched the launch from about 15 miles away. And oh, so that was uh, pretty spectacular. So we didn't, unfortunately, a cloud kind of uh, interrupted about half of the liftoff, but saw it for for a good little bit. I mean that that Falcon 9 rocket really kicks off quick. So, um, it was mm-hmm. by the time it came into our view and it went out of view, it was maybe 10 seconds, but it was, it was pretty spectacular and I've never heard the rumble of a liftoff and it was, it was just nuts. Cause like 40 seconds after it actually lifted off, then all of a sudden the sound finally hit us and it was, it was spectacular, but yeah, it was cool. And then spent Sunday, uh, Sunday kind of just doing some work and doing some renovation work at home and kind of eyeing the tv so i could watch the docking and mm-hmm. then once they they finally got out and into the the space station so it was it was a cool cool weekend for for space it was it was uh, i mean yeah and
0: boy i was tense during that launch i mean because i thought okay is this gonna work you know, and because they'd never used, it, you know, the first manned space mission in nine years from the United States and new technology. And it all looks so cool in 21st century with touchscreens and sleek and white. And, you know, Elon Musk and his folks sure know how to design things to look cool. Yeah. And even when they were drove out in those cool Teslas that look sort of like DeLoreans in a way. I mean, it was neat. And um, yeah. I just thought, wow, okay, this is what space travel is really supposed to look like.
1: Now. Exactly. I mean, I
0: felt like, you know, at first I thought, oh, we're going up in capsules. Oh, well, we've done that before. But then, you know, when the main stage returns and lands on the drone ship and, and so this was a lot of new technology and, and the new screens and all that, I thought this is exciting and they already have their plan for the moon base and all that. I mean, very cool. You know, and, and another station orbiting the moon. Yeah, they want to. You know, called Gateway. I mean, I'm excited. I mean, it's really
1: great. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. No, this. Uh, and this, and it gives. Hmm? Yeah, commercial. Go ahead. This, this whole commercial, uh, this commercialized form of of space right now, working working with NASA hand in hand. It just. It seems to be the right combination right now to really take us forward in terms of of space flight. Mm-hmm. So I, it's just so exciting.
0: Yeah, and what's exciting too is literally, you know, like they when I was a boy, they said anybody can grow up to be president, and and we we're seeing that come true, you know, now, and and it, but. When I was a boy, it was mainly, you know, test pilots and Air Force pilots, and it was really limited to men in that day who who became astronauts. But now, the space program, the shuttle program really opened it up to anybody, no matter what, as long as you have the knowledge and the skill. It makes no difference who you are. You can become an astronaut. Now, I'm thinking as if I were a child in this day and age who had any dreams of going to space, boy, now's the time. I mean, this is the era to live in. Just figure out what what kind of scientist do you want to be. There's prob- They probably have a need for it mm-hmm. now in the space program. So do your homework and do well in school and do your research to find out what it takes to be an astronaut, and you know, the sky's the limit. I mean, well, the heavens, the celestials, is the limit. I don't know. So, um, so I, I'm very excited for today's youth that this is something really
1: achievable for them oh, as they grow up. A hundred percent. So, it's, you know, it, it was... A very bright spot in what has been a very, a very long week and a very long weekend mm-hmm. with with all of the uh, the the peaceful protests that have been happening around the United States and some of the the protests that have turned violent and it's just it's been so tough since since everything happened with George Floyd and leading up it's just been a very mm-hmm. it's been a very bleak week and it's you know a it's, lot yeah sorry it's it's
0: been a bleak few months but well, you know we've all been sequestered because of covid and then the, you know i'm fine with the peaceful protests because that's our constitutional right but the people that are taking advantage and and are are causing mayhem and harm to people, you know, that's not right. And, um, and, and and you know, so it's been a tough few months for this country. And yeah, I agree with you to have this space program now that with its successful launch is just, yeah, it really was a bright spot and something that we
1: can rally around. Exactly. So it's, it, you know, I, I'm glad that I had it as a distraction this past weekend and and throughout the week kind of watching and expecting it and hoping it to and uh, it's just it it was a nice bright spot and it didn't it of course it didn't erase any of the problems happening in the world as Mm -hmm it won't because it can't it can't fix a a bright moment like that can be a distraction but it can't fix everything else happening in the world and Mm -hmm. uh we don't expect it to but it really was it was it was fun to watch that launch and it was it was and and um you know we we had a, a glitch
0: of story time with michael in that there was a processing error. Like, Craig, we were talking before the show. It's like, anytime we announce something, something goes wrong with it. <laughs> yeah. But a future story time with Michael is going to be space-themed. Disney-themed and space-themed. Yes. I'm not even going to say when it is because <laughs> I don't want to jinx it. So, um, But it'll be coming up. But it was recorded um, shortly after the launch of The Falcon, So, hopefully, uh, you'll all enjoy it. Yeah. So, anyway. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much everything. So, well, in Episode 4 of Connecting with Walt, titled The Master Plan... Craig and I talked about Walt Disney's original plan for Epcot and what a visit to Epcot the city as Walt envisioned it might have been like. If you haven't listened to episode four, I highly recommend you listen to it to learn about Walt's original plans for Epcot. In episode 75, A Dream Reimagined, we talked about how the concept of Epcot changed from a city of the future to the theme park Epcot Center. And in episodes 86, 97, and 98, we talked about the history of Spaceship Earth, which is the icon of Epcot Center. In episodes 131 and 132, we began our exploration of Future World with a look at the Universe of Energy Pavilion. In episode 149, we began our discussion of the Old Wonders of Life Pavilion with a look at its history and attraction layout, This week, we're going to examine the most popular attractions that were within the pavilion. So we're going to start out with the big one. And this was Body Wars, Epcot Center's first thrill ride. And I think both Craig and I uh, have the strongest memories of this attraction. And my children went on it, but I doubt they have any memory of it at all. (laughs) Um... The story behind Body Wars actually begins with Walt Disney. Um, Walt had a great fascination with miniatures. In fact, you can see his collection um, when you visit the Walt Disney Family Museum. Um, he had a large collection of miniatures. He built miniatures and gave them as gifts. Uh, well, Probably his most well-known ones were he made these little tiny iron stoves like potbelly stoves, and gave them as gifts to people. And a few of them are in the museum, Walt Disney Family okay. Museum. Um, and he, of course, he had a miniature railroad in his backyard. His idea for Disneyland started out as a, sort of a miniature uh, scenes that he was going to call Dis, um, Disneylandia, um, but and it was going to travel on the uh, train cars. Around various points in the United States until it was pointed out to him by Buzz Price and and Roy, his brother, that they were not going to make any money on that. So that's when he turned to an idea of a theme park. Um, And also, the idea of audio animatronics started with miniatures. So, when the Monsanto House of the Future faced its final year at Disneyland's Tomorrowland, Walt was intrigued when Dr. Charles Allen Thomas, who was a key researcher at the Monsanto Chemical Company, approached him with the idea of creating an attraction that would explore the miniature world of inner space. Now, originally called MicroWorld, the attraction would carry guests and omnimovers, which were named Atomobiles for the attraction, into the miniature world of a snowflake. And the storyline for this attraction would have guests become smaller and smaller during their journey till so they could actually see the atoms of oxygen and hydrogen that make up water in snowflakes as the snowflakes start to melt. And to prevent guests from being lost forever, they would be quickly returned to normal size and the real world. As they returned to full size, they would see a huge moving eye of a scientist in a microscope watching their transformation and I went on this a whole lot when I was a boy, and a lot of people believed that you really were
1: shrunk down it's one as of you went through the mighty microscope yeah it's <laughs> one of those attractions that I wish I had the chance to experience it so if it if there was any way to get rid of star tours out in uh, in disneyland and replace it i would i would be all for that it was very
0: cool and and with today's technology they could probably improve upon you know the the seraphim snowflakes yeah the things that they had in it um it would be neat if they ever redid tomorrowland to um include an updated version of that i think people would like it i think so too so um Mm-hmm. Uh the the final version of that attraction officially opened on January twenty-seventh, nineteen sixty-seven, and it was called Adventure Through Inner Space. It was one of the most popular rides at Disneyland until it closed twenty years later on September 2nd, 1985. And the show building it was needed for a new attraction that would eventually be called, as Craig mentioned, Star Tours. Then there was a popular film in 1966, Fantastic Voyage, and it was a combination of the Cold War spy films that were very popular at the time and a science fiction storyline about exploring the inside of the human body. And in the film, a team of specialists on board a miniaturized submarine are injected into the body of a defecting Russian scientist who has suffered a dangerous blood clot as a result of an attack by Russian spies. And in addition to eliminating that threat, they also have to battle the body itself, in particular white blood cells trying to protect the body. I loved this film when I was a boy. So I just thought it was cool. Yeah.
1: You ever seen Fantastic Voyage, Craig? I have. Yeah, it's uh, you know it. I would say it actually there are parts of it that that still hold up in terms of like mm-hmm. that that entire genre of uh, in you know late '50s, '60s, even going into the '70s kind of sci-fi style films. Uh, mm-hmm. It's actually one that I feel feel like is still very watchable to this day. It's not not necessarily B movie. Yeah, I'll have to see if it's still around. But yeah, I mean, in the 60s, all
0: of those sci-fi films, they had a very unique style Yeah, at that time. Um, Fantastic Voyage was a big hit for 20th Century Fox. Hey, maybe we will see it. <laughs> maybe it'll end up on Disney+. Plus. One day. You know, now day. that they own 20th Century Fox. and And it was highly praised for its special effects, earning two Oscars, one for Best Art Direction and one for... Best visual effects, um, special visual effects. Although some critics claimed the best visual effect was a young Raquel Welch in a (laughs) skin-tight diving suit. Kids, you'll probably, with the help of your parents, have to Google her. (laughs) Although some critics claim the best visual... Oh, I already said that. As we mentioned in our previous episode, Disney artist and Imagineer Frank Armitage created the production illustrations and Academy Award-winning set designs for the 1966 sci-fi film. He painted scenes of the interior of the human body, which was then turned into larger-than-life sets, and his paintings were an inspiration for the Wonders of Life pavilion. Now, the Disney Imagineers were intrigued by this concept of exploring the inside of the human body in a miniaturized submarine vehicle. However, they wanted to improve the technology used in Adventures Through Inner Space, like the styrofoam snowflakes I mentioned, and to put more distance between the guests and the show scenes because the guests were reaching out and sort of messing around with those styrofoam snowflakes and other um, sets. As we discussed last week, the Imagineers designed a spectacular dark ride for this pavilion called The Incredible Journey Within that would send guests on an incredible journey inside the amazing human body. When Disney secured the sponsorship of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, or MetLife, to finance the construction of the Wonders of Life pavilion, and the Imagineers prepared to work on The Incredible Journey Within, they gradually realized that their plans were too ambitious. Marty Sklar and his team worked tirelessly on how they could realistically build and maintain the massive set pieces that such a journey would require. And said Sklar, if you can think of moving, of moving a section of lung, for instance, that was 30 feet high on a continuous basis as people ride through, you can imagine how ponderous and difficult that turned out to be. So the Imagineers eventually concluded that the limitations of technology and the cost of making the fluid, fluctuating world of the human body just wasn't possible. Imagineering looked to a very successful attraction at Disneyland as the solution. So in 1984, Imagineering purchased some modified flight training simulators in the United Kingdom from Redifon called ATLAS, and these were Advanced Technology Leisure Application Simulators. And they were purchased to develop the new Star Tours attraction, being developed with George Lucas. So Imagineers decided that if these simulators could convincingly simulate a journey through space, they could convincingly simulate a journey through the human body. So, the incredible journey within became Body Wars. And with that, the problem of constructing and maintaining 30-foot beating hearts and breathing lungs was resolved. The show building for Body Wars is a separate structure from the main dome, so guests would walk past the circus-themed interior of the Wonders of Life dome and approach a series of freestanding arches leading to the edge of the dome. The massive mural that wrapped around part of the pavilion's inner circumference might have been enough to cause guests to get queasy when seeing blood to just move on. The mural depicted the inner human body— Sharp eyed guests could spot a hidden Mickey in a cluster of ganglia. So the story of Body Wars starts with a company called MET, which stands for miniaturization exploration technology. And they were supposed to be a pioneer in health and medicine dedicated to the betterment of our lives. Yeah, and since the sponsor for the pavilion was Met Life Insurance, it was a very clever play on words. So Med was providing the public with tours of their center, which included observation rides in their new body probe vehicles. The LGS-2050 body probe vehicle was a cutting-edge way to explore the human body. These sleek white 26-ton pods can be miniaturized to almost the size of a cell and weigh less than a drop of water, then beamed into a human body for research and exploration. Pretty amazing. The main queue was made up of a long, sterile corridor between two pulsing dermatopic purification units, level 1 and 2, which guests passed through to be purified. So it's clear then that we're in a research facility sealed off from the pathogens that are teeming in the outside world. Then the characters who worked in the facility were introduced to guests through the public address system and on overhead video monitors. All of this was contained on laser discs that played the show in a continuous loop. Also heard on the public address system was the status of the four body probe vehicles in service at the four bay locations. So at bay 1 that was Zulu 174 or Z174 and it was ready to load at bay number 1 and the spinal dura matter observation team was directed to report to the boarding area Particle Reduction Specialist Harris is later requested to bay number 1 Finally it was reported that Z174 had been successfully miniaturized and entered the spinal dura matter when guests arrived at the loading area, Z174 was listed as departed. Bay 2, a request was made for the molecular compression specialist to report to bay number 2. Shortly afterwards, it was reported that body probe Bravo 229 or B229 had been rolled up to the loading area. The final clearance inspection was reported is now underway. Condition? Code yellow. The probe was destined for the epi- <laughs> epidermal multi air to view a splinter. When guests arrived at the boarding area, B229 was listed as departing in five minutes. Bay 3, Sierra 657 or S657, was reported as online and ready for miniaturization at Bay 3. Condition Code Green A request was put out for a Dr. Victoria Humphrey to retrieve an epidermal cell scanner from the bay. Eventually, the probe was reported as successfully miniaturized with entry into the occipital frontalis muscle. Additionally, Bay 3 reported the successful diminiaturization of probe Foxtrot 817 F817. Now, the probe was not listed on screens as a body probe vehicle, so it might either have been a mistake or an earlier unmanned probe returning from its mission. When guests arrive at the loading area, S657 was listed as destined for the spongy medulla tibia with departure in 52 minutes. And Bay 4, this bay announced the final clearance checks for probe Charlie 218, C-218, with passenger loading underway. Now, C-218 was the probe guests watched beamed into the epidermal tier bruise in one of the overhead queue videos. When guests arrived at the loading area, C-218 is listed as departed. MET Alerts would also play periodically on the overhead monitors, and it would present formal announcements to the observation team, also known as guests, from the MET Center. The first video introduced Jane, the guest's orientation officer. Jane wore a uniform similar to the one worn by the attraction cast members, a gray smock with burgundy trim. Jane introduced guests to the 26-ton LGS-250 proddy probe. She drew parallels to NASA as she explained the history of MET and how their unmanned probes led to the manned probes with public observation flights. She briefly described miniaturization as a highly sophisticated and ingenious process. The second video introduced us to the unmanned mission control officer in a red commander uniform. He explained how the control tower will observe and ensure the safety of the mission. He allowed guests to view the C-128 body probe being miniaturized and beamed beneath the skin of a patient using the particle reducer. He did not explain how the particle reducer actually works. The final video in the queue introduced the center's chief scientist, Dr. Fletcher. He wore a stylized lab coat and talked about the advantages of being able to observe the body systems up close. He had a fascination with white blood cells attacking foreign objects like viruses and bacteria. He also emphasized that for safety reasons, guests will experience a routine mission in the subskin region as not to endanger observers in the more perilous parts of the human body. So after waiting a few hours in 1989, or a few minutes in 2004, (laughs) guests would reach a grouping area where cast members would direct them to a loading area. Although the queue presentation stated that B-229 was in bay two, guests could be directed to any of the four bays. The vehicles each held 40 passengers in five rows. Rows one, two, and four held eight passengers, and row three held seven, and row five held nine. All the bays played the same pre-show in which we're told that we're just a few minutes behind Dr. Cynthia Lair, who's played by Academy Award-winning actress Elizabeth Shue, who's volunteered to be miniaturized and beamed into a patient to study the body's immune response to a splinter. Our mission is simple. Follow Dr. Lair's route inside the patient aboard Probe Bravo 229, piloted by Captain Braddock, who's Tim Matheson, to retrieve her and bring her home. And After the pre-show, we board the probe. Strapped aboard Bravo 229, Captain Braddock appears via a small screen to the right of our viewport. As he welcomes us on board and signals the start of our reduction sequence, a shield covering the viewport falls away. and We're pulling up to a particle reducer that'll beam us just beneath the skin of our patient. As the particle reducer powers up, the vehicle lifts and jostles before being propelled forward using a similar light speed effect from Star Tours. When our view returns, we are microscopic, drifting in a chamber of vehicles and tubes with oblong spheres drifting past in the channel. Directly in front of us is a group of white blood cells on their way to destroy the splinter, we're told as we drift aside to follow them, a continual pulse draws us back and forth, shuffling the pod. Then it appears a splinter, which on this scale might as well be a skyscraper pierced through the skin, with white blood cells clamping on. Dr. Lair is already here. She needs just one more cell count before she can join us on board. And as with most modern day Disney park Theme, at- theme park attractions something goes horribly wrong as we drift under the splinter she calls out mayday Dr. Lair has been pulled into a capillary we've got to find her so the probe tears through a bulbous fatty layer and races into a vein slamming left and right as the heart's pulse tears the ship forward and back I'm being pulled into the heart she cries "'We've got to time it just right "'so as not to be crushed by the flaps "'of the right ventricle's valves. "'Still, she's drawn further through the circulatory system "'and toward the lungs. "'We have to chance it,' Braddock commands. "'As deep, guttural breaths from the patient "'draw the vehicle forward and back. "'It tilts and thrusts. "'We stun a white blood cell, "'determine to consume Dr. Lair, "'and she climbs aboard.'" Unfortunately, our journey has used too much power. We can't beam out. We need an energy boost, Braddock orders. The brain, it works on electrical impulse. The path forward, another capillary. This time we're drawn backwards into the heart again, slamming and swaying us with every pulse. We have only 5% power now. We've got to use the heartbeat to propel us. With a part, with a pulse, we're, we're off, slamming again until a hard right takes us into the spinal fluid. With a jolt, we pass the blood-brain barrier as electrical nerves surround us, their sparks lighting the dark cabin. The cerebral cortex, Lara says, we're in the brain. Braddock, your power is gone, the mission commander reports via radio. I repeat, your power is gone with the last bit of strength the ship drifts against a neuron this neuron better fire then with a pulse of energy we enter into the warping beam again in a flash we're back outside the particle reducer incredible lair shouts do you realize what we just did you broke every regulation in the book You also managed to pull off the most spectacular mission this place has ever seen. Congratulations, says the mission commander. And just like that, our mission is complete in just five minutes. Guests pass down a series of plain laboratory hallways before encountering the pastel circumstance of the Wonders of Life dome attractions.
1: So, Craig, did you enjoy this
0: ride through inner space.
1: I'll be honest. I actually did not care for body wars that much. Um, Something about it just never, never really sat well with it for me. So I felt like it was more, uh, it was more rough than star tours was and using it as an example, Mm -hmm. because it was the only thing you really could compare it to at the time. Uh, It just felt more violent and, uh, then I also were Star Tours that felt like you were getting yourself into like just like situations that could easily get yourself out of something with this ride. Like the fact that you just like are traveling through bloodstreams and such. It felt so much more chaotic that, you know, when I was when I was really little riding it, it just it kind of scared me in a way cuz it it seemed mm-hmm. like it seemed like there was more chances for something to go wrong and i i think a lot of those experiences of doing body wars when i was a little kid ended up having an impact on me then when when i was older and returning back to do it and just being like yeah it's kind of old it's rickety it doesn't look like it's updated anymore and it's just it's still too rough and just not really a, a great attraction so i've i've never been i've never been really fond of body wars mm-hmm. for that reason yeah
0: i went on it and it's yeah, i went on it in its heyday and i really really enjoyed it and then you know when my children and carol went on it it um it was you know it was not in pristine shape, and I still enjoyed it. But Carolyn, and the children didn't like it, and for a lot of the reasons that you um, you said, and what we're going to cover next, why it you know went from lines to four to five hours to being a walk on attraction. Yeah,
1: it was so like um, even in mm-hmm. watching or preparing for this episode, I I rewatched some videos of it, and it just something about it just did not it didn't connect it didn't have and I know I know, we're going to get into it but it's it was the difference between Star Tours and even Star Tours now and, and this where it's just when you use technology to create a realistic environment it can stand the test of time for so much longer and that's not something that Body Wars did well in my opinion
0: okay yeah so. Yeah,
1: well, well, the Body Wars film was
0: directed by Leonard Nimoy, and he's best known as Star Trek's Mr. Spock, of course, and he had recently finished directing Touchstone's 1987 hit, Three Men and a Baby. So with anatomical images produced by then-cutting-edge computer graphics and special effects film techniques, it was a remarkably realistic experience – perhaps a little too realistic as craig's pointed out when he was a boy and what we're going to discuss next and as nimoy said even though body wars is the shortest film i've ever directed it presented a new set of challenges at the time we had to take into account that the film will be shown inside a moving theater the simulator so in order to intensify the sense of motion, we built a set that actually moves and rocked it during filming to match the pitching and rolling of the simulator. So Body Wars was promoted as the ride of your life and was Epcot Center's first attraction with a height requirement and was the park's ultimate thrill ride at the time and might have been a little too thrilling. Each probe vehicle weighed 27,000 pounds fully loaded before it's miniaturized um, and is supported by six hydraulic server act, servo actuators offering six degrees of freedom of movement, planes in heave, surge, and sway, and axes in um, pitch, roll, and yaw. And the fil- ride film cues the physical motions of the pod, as each frame generates a timecode pulse with an associated positioning for the ride's motion-based arms. Structurally, each Body Wars vehicle is operated with the same constraints as Star Tours, but Body Wars very quickly gained a reputation for being a rough ride. The rhythmic forward and backward lunges of the vehicle as the body breathed was said to be the primary cause of nausea in early riders. In fact, the attraction featured a triage area just outside the exit of the vehicles where guests were offered water and cold compresses should they need the assistance. The cast member in this position was also responsible for calling over to the load side and report any protein spills, they discovered, so the next set of passengers could be restaged to another loading bay. Given that Body Wars is structurally the same as Star Tours, why it was it such a rough ride, leaving so many riders queasy and sick? Well, like Star Tours, the motion program of Body Wars was created by an Imagineer sitting at a control board on a simulator with a joystick, manually creating what would be the attraction's motion profile. When the attraction was being developed, an Imagineer watched the film repeatedly whilst moving a computer joystick to indicate movement and to synchronize the ride in the film. The 70mm film ran at 24 frames per second. The designers responsible for the simulator's motion added an extra bit of motion to Body Wars. Throughout the ride, the vehicle rhythmically bucks and thrusts to match the pulse of the human bloodstream. Even when the vehicle is meant to be floating in place, the ebb and flow of the heartbeat jostles the cabin. The motion gets even worse in the lungs, where the patient inhales and exhales, causing the vehicle to repeatedly lift and drop. This continual throbbing and and movement of the vehicle was in keeping with the story and the motion of the body, but it never gave guests a chance to rest, regain their balance, and catch their breath. If the film slipped out of synchronization even slightly, it could also cause a feeling of uneasiness. Although there is a debate as to the exact causes of simulator sickness, a primary suspected cause is inconsistent information about body orientation and motion received by the different senses, known as cue conflict theory. For example, in a moving car, your eyes tell you that you're moving, whilst your sense of Proprioception, uh, I can't, all these difficult medical <laughs> words, which is your understanding of your own place in motion, which is controlled by your inner ear, says you're sitting stationary. So for some, this contradiction leads to motion sickness. So motion simulators make it even worse, and is why programmers have to be attentive so that each motion syncs up perfectly to its corresponding film frame. Now, allegedly, Body War's more aggressive ride cycle also made it prone to glitching the ride vehicle, skipping a few frames and throwing off the careful choreography that subconsciously would create intense motion sickness in riders as their eyes and ears struggled to make sense of their location.
1: We actually uh, we had that problem a lot at Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey, that we would have mm-hmm. to do uh, we'd have to do rides on it every now and then just to double check that everything was still in sync because uh, if if it went off sync just a little bit, you know even though it's a moving motion simulator, uh, considering three of the main parts take place in in domes big video screen domes like. It could make people very, very sick. So it's, uh, it, it is definitely a big issue with simulators. It has to be perfect, or people get mm. sick very quickly. Oh,
0: that's interesting. So how often would, would that attraction have to be checked to make sure it was all synced
1: up? There, you know, there it could go weeks, a month without ever needing to be uh, resynced, and then then there could be days where it'd be like five or six times throughout uh, an eight-hour shift where, where you would just constantly ride and they'd have to reset it. So it's, I mean compared to something like body wars back in the day being run on film and such like a a much different scenario. This is like, literally we had a button that we just clicked and it would re sync everything up to it. Yeah. uh, Yeah.
0: I bet it was more difficult back in the day with body wars. Exactly. Another reason people may have felt sick on the attraction is because blood splinters, pulsating organs, blood, flapping valves, and the insides of our bodies in general can be sickening. (laughs) So, all of this combined was just too much for many guests. Cast members in control booths were assigned to carefully watch guests in each simulator during its cycle to look for signs of motion sickness so that the ride could be e-stopped before it got to the point of Code V, the Disney term for a guest who has vomited. It got so bad that sometime prior to 1992, the attraction film was edited to be about 30 seconds shorter with an on-screen fade between frames. Most of the cuts were in the lung sequence because riders said the rhythmic forward and backward lunges of the vehicle as the body breathed was the primary cause of their nausea. Tragically, on May 16, 1995, a four-year-old girl named Linda Elaine baker from texas slumped over in her seat three minutes into the ride she was seated next to her single mother the ride was immediately shut down and paramedics were called two nurses were on the attraction and tried to revive the girl using cpr but were unable to revive her she was pronounced dead after being airlifted to orlando regional medical center the attraction was shut down for an investigation. The autopsy suggested that the girl had a pre-existing heart ailment known as cardiac conduction defect. There was no evidence that the attraction had aggravated or triggered the condition. Linda's mother reported that her daughter had no health problems at the time, but relatives of the family said she did have a heart ailment, and Linda had been treated at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston for undisclosed reasons. Two months after the opening of the Wonders of Life Pavilion, Star Tours opened at the Disney-MGM Studios, and the inevitable comparisons between Body Wars and Star Wars began, and most guests preferred the brand-new attraction based on a popular film franchise in the brand-new park. Body Wars couldn't compete. As multi-hour queues built for Star Tours, Body Wars became a walk-on attraction. So Body Wars
1: it, it's um it's Reign was very short lived. Yep. I <laughs> it's I, I understand the entire concept of it. It just it's it didn't it didn't execute. It didn't execute well. Uh not not compared to to Star Tours in that way, and then mm-hmm. as simulators have become more and more popular, and they've evolved even further, it just it it never really had a chance. So had had Star Tours not come to Walt Disney World and only stayed at Disneyland, maybe it would have it would have held uh, its ground a lot longer. But uh, it just in my in my mind, the the two could never compete. Uh, it was it was not it was not. What I went to Wonders of Life for the the next thing that we're going to talk about for me that's that's the thing that that made this pavilion stand out the most. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, yeah, and like I said, I I found Body Wars fascinating. That I I find medical things interesting and all that, so I enjoyed it. And you know, I liked Fantastic Voyage, and to me, it was it was basically like you know a continuation of that film. Yeah. So um, so I enjoyed it, but uh, you know I and I I also too watched videos of it and um, you know in preparation for this and it definitely you know as it got into the you you know few years later it it definitely felt dated yeah especially some of the Star Wars like uniform or Star Trek like uniforms that they had and you know and all of that you know their concept of what the future would be like at the time.
1: Interest and style, you know, just didn't hold up. I mean, all that too, heck, so. I i love Tim Matheson, but even even his career didn't really continue blossoming too far out of the the '90s. So that's he kind of hit his do, heyday. Do you think in the Body 90s. Wars? You, you think Body Wars killed his career? I don't think it killed his career, <laughs> but it definitely was that that it was a, a spot as he was starting to spiral down and. And not do a lot of good things. And I'm sure there's someone out there who's going to yell at me and say, Oh, do you! I can't believe you don't like Tim Matheson in this thing from 2010. But I'm just, it, it's my perspective that uh, uh, he, mid-90s is when he just started kind of disappearing for the most part. I don't know that much about his career
0: after the 90s. I'm sure I've seen him in stuff that nothing just stands out right now for me. Exactly. But- yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that proves your point. <laughs> okay, but now, okay, here comes the next attraction—the one that was the highlight for you, and I think for a lot of people, because it was lighthearted and fun. And we're talking about Cranium Command. Um, another building built onto the main dome of the Wonders of Life Pavilion is the Cranium Command Theater. The gateway for Cranium Command was in the sensory funhouse area of the dome, and a large marquee arch indicated the entrance. And as we mentioned in our last episode, the original concept for this attraction was the head trip. With animatronics for intellect, emotion, and the nervous system, the show would have helped guests understand what life is like inside the human body, especially the brain. Now the show had a Star Trek feel to it. Guests would watch an animatronic show that would take place in the brain with the theater of the brain sort of looking like the bridge of a starship. And you would see the crew attempt to work together to solve any issues that arose. Due to budget cuts, though, the show had to be revamped. And this time, the show had a more military theme and centered around Captain Cortex and his commander general knowledge. The entire show transformed to have more of a military slant with the brain being almost a command center of its own. Well, Disney initially hired out the production of the project to an outside firm named Colossal Pictures. Unfortunately, when Disney saw the show that Colossal made, they decided it was not anything close to what they could put into their park. So Disney had to start the project over again and had only five months to complete the whole project. Disney brought on Jerry Reese to complete the project. Reese had worked on 13 different attractions for the parks, including Rock and Roller Coaster, the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular, and Dinosaur, and he had gained the confidence of park executives and Imagineers. Cranium Command seamlessly combined live action, animation, and animatronics, and Jerry Reese is largely responsible for that cohesion overseeing every aspect of the project. Reese called on up-and-coming animators Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise to direct the animated pre-show for the attraction. So using traditional hand-drawn animation at the animation studio at the Disney MGM studio, the pre-show set the storyline and the problem that a young recruit, Buzzy, would be in charge of controlling a 12-year-old boy, one of the toughest tasks out there for a brain commander. It was the very last project of Disney feature animation to be traditionally inked and painted on cells. One of the credited animators on the pre-show was Pete Doctor. Now a chief creative officer of Pixar Animation, Pete Docter has credited Cranium Command as being an inspiration for a film he directed, Inside Out, as we speculated on last week. Mm-hmm. When filming the live-action scenes, Reese recruited several Saturday Night Live alumni to play the different body parts. Charles Groden played the left brain, John Lovitz the right brain, George went the stomach, Jeff Doucette, the bladder, Bob Goldwaith, the adrenal gland, Kirk Weiss, the hy- hypothalamus, and Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon as the left and right ventricles. For me, using some of these actors, especially Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon's Saturday Night Live characters, Hans and Franz, made the show feel dated after a few years. Um, Buzzy was an audio-animatronic figure seated in a chair on an arm that could move him around and up and down. All the other characters appeared in film clips on various screens, except for the hypothalamus, which was a robot-like figure that rose up from the floor. Reese and his team did complete Cranium Command in time for the pavilion's grand opening on October 19, 1989. And during the 17-minute show, Buzzy had to deal with a typical day of misadventures of a 12-year-old boy at school, from missing the school bus and having to run to school, to an accident in a chemistry class, to dealing with bullies, and an infatuation with a female schoolmate. Imagineers had planned that the show might be reprogrammed over the years to tell different stories about how the body deals with other issues rather than just stress management. Sadly, MedLife ending its sponsorship in June 2001 also ended any hopes of Cranium Command being updated. So Craig, what is it about Cranium Command that connected with
1: you? Honestly, it's the... The actors who were actually in it, so Mm -hmm. you know, I I do agree with your statement about uh, Dana, Dana Carvey, and Kevin Nealon doing Hans and Franz for it. But uh, that it goes back to that was that was my era of Saturday Night Live that that I grew up on. That that I absolutely loved. I was probably way too young to be watching it, but it was my my parents were still watching it and as reruns became more prevalent on Comedy Central and, and other places, it just it was something that I, you know, I don't remember like starting to watch it. It was just always there from the late 80s through all the characters in the 90s. So, and uh, between that, like, you know, so you have them, you have John Lovitz, from Saturday night live to my parents love cheers so i knew who mm-hmm. george went was from literally from the very beginning uh, <laughs> and then even uh, charles groden i mean he was just massive during that time period so even though he had, he mm-hmm. didn't really make it out of the the 90s either but like the 80s 80s through the the early 90s i mean he was he was a he was a star not not an A-list star by any means, but in kind of B-list movies, he was he was a really big deal. So it was just every everyone oh, yeah. in this was just someone I connected to, and then the people that I didn't even necessarily uh, I wasn't as familiar with, like Bobcat. Like it's just someone that now, as as I've gotten older, I've gone back and and seen more of what Bobcat has done and heard a lot of his uh, his comedy as well too from the 80s and you know as as he continued working and lending his voice to stuff it just like hercules you know it just it made me even more familiar with mm-hmm. him so it's just one of those it's one of those attractions that it was an instant hit for me the first time i saw it because of how familiar i was but then it also hit that right era of everyone who was in it was so important to me while i was growing up that i didn't i didn't let it age well or i didn't let it age poorly because it was just it's it's stuff that's important to me it was purely nostalgia driven yeah oh yeah i watched this too um you know prepping for the show i watched a couple of videos
0: on it and i i I reminded me how perfect bobcat goldways was as the adrenal gland. Yeah. Oh, oh. my gosh. Because I, I was familiar with his material because, you know, I was older yeah. when I saw it. And actually, even though it's dated for me, really, it's only the Hans and Franz thing that dated it for me. But everybody they picked to represent different parts of the body, they were perfect they really for were. it. Yeah. And, um, the you know, the complexity of putting all, that whole show together between the audio-animatronics and then um, everything that was going on. And it it was so chaotic, like a 12-year-old boy is, as he's experiencing all this stuff. The editing and the special effects that were going on and all that, it it was masterful, I thought. It it
1: was a very complex um, theater show, I thought. It absolutely was, and that's I think that's part of it too. That there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of rewatchability for it because of the fact mm-hmm. that you know it's as things got more chaotic, you know they they did a good job of centering what what you're supposed to watch and all of it, but at the same time, uh, it's you could always go back and see things you didn't necessarily notice before, and and that's that's the stamp of a good attraction.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. I, I, every time we went here, I, we never missed Cranium Command. It was a lot of fun. I agree. Well, as well, as the p- pavilion was converted to a festival center, Buzzy remained untouched, sitting in his darkened theater. That is, until it was reported in December 2018 that the Buzzy audio-animatronics figure had disappeared from the closed attraction. The pressurized hydraulic lines were cut in order to remove the 300-pound figure. And in one report I read on it, they said there was hydraulic fluid everywhere in the theater. Um, Patrick Allen Spikes, a former Disney employee, and his cousin Blayton Totten, Uh, ...were charged with burglary, grand theft, and dealing in stolen property of Buzzy's bomber jacket, headset, and green hat that Spike sold for $8,000, which ended up in the possession of NBA player Robin Lopez. That was the most curious thing of all. (laughs) Um, According to interviews, Lopez purchased Buzzy's clothes after getting in contact with him via eBay. While Buzzy's complete outfit included a bomber jacket, headphones, and green hat, it is still unknown what clothes Lopez specifically had. Lopez claims was to have spoken with Spikes over the telephone before the purchase was finalized and asked if the items were stolen, and Spikes assured him that the clothes had not been stolen. And Orange County's authorities agreed with Lopez that he had been victimized by the perpetrators, and he is one hundred percent cooperating with the investigation. I think, if I remember correctly, when this is all happening, that Lopez is, is like a big Disney fan, and he collects memorabilia.
1: Yeah, absolutely is.
0: Mm, yep. So, and and apparently, he collects high end memorabilia. Yes. Yeah. So. However, Spikes denied taking the figure itself, which is still missing, which I can't imagine. How do you remove a 300-pound figure with nobody noticing? Um, and and that figure is still missing despite some reports that a Disney department and the biggest suspect is the Walt Disney Archives (laughs) removed it without informing any other departments so the Orlando police still consider it missing have there been any updates I'm unaware of Craig Um, on this? no there hasn't yeah I didn't think so because I I looked for the latest and the latest was like the beginning of this year and um because um Spikes and his cousin Blayton faced charges of dealing with stolen property, grand theft, and burglarizing a structure at the Magic Kingdom. They were busy between July 2018 and January 8th, 2019. So in addition, Spikes is charged with burglary of a building at Epcot, according to the court record. So both men have pleaded not guilty to criminal charges, but... In February 2020, Spikes and Taunton pleaded no contest in Orange Circuit Court as part of a plea deal to avoid jail time. So Spikes received 10 years probation and 250 hours of community service, in addition to $25,308 in restitution plus court fees. Taunton received five years probation and 125 hours of community service for his role in the alleged crimes. Now, authorities stated that Spikes acted as if he worked with Imagineers, which is why he had access to these Walt Disney World props. However, Spikes snuck into cast member-only areas and created fake Walt Disney World IDs, including one for a Mr. Jack D. Marrow, an employee um, Disney has stated doesn't exist. He should have made one for Tom Morrow. Yeah. (laughs) Let's see if anybody caught on. Close enough,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so hopefully
1: Buzzy is safe and sound in the archives. And, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I... We'll see. ...have no idea if he actually is. I know, you know, I I think I've said before at least once or twice on this show, it's, that was one of the things that we did in when people who finished their training at Test Track way back when, so when I was a cast member in... 2010, that was a thing that we did, is we went and we would go into Cranium Command because it was just, it was common knowledge, at least from the back the back side, uh, the cast member side of it, that all the doors to get up there just were unlocked. So, yeah. you know, that was kind of like a special thing that we did as our, as our uh... As we were finishing up our training and becoming cast members, it was we would go inside the show building and, and see it sitting there. And um, it, it was creepy because you know it's dark and just a little bit of light was still kind of pouring into it so you could see well, but it was it was very, very eerie being in there. So I still have I, I found it actually relatively not too long ago, uh, a photo of it from my cell phone that I had at the time that I had on a little Ah. hard drive. I'll have to try to transfer it to my computer, but it was, yeah, you have to, I I would love to see it. Yeah. It was, it was weird. Sorry. Is it a poor little buzzy sitting all alone in the dark? Yeah. And there's, it's, you know, obviously because it sat around there so much later, um, it's been documented a lot better once urban explorers figured out how easy it was to get inside, the show building, um, it's a lot of. Then once everyone started going in there, it's a lot of people took a lot better quality images of it and stuff to be able to see. But uh, just it's it's just weird. And like back at that time, it's the we did we did that on our side, and then if you worked on the other side of Future World, um, like all the Soren kids, they would go in and see what remained of um, of food rocks and, oh. and that because. <laughs> You know, they just they had to end that for Soren, and they cut off they cut off the theater, but it was still standing for a very long time before mm-hmm. they actually did anything. Hmm. So um, it's yeah, it's it, it. I I hope they find everything that they need or announce everything with the buzzy animatronic. But I mean, I think this needs to just be a lesson in the long run for the archives, for Imagineering, for everyone. Remove stuff that's important when it closes down, and above and beyond even that, just lock doors. Like get some yeah, locks. Really, lock doors. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so
0: I think I read in one of the reports too that um, Buzzy's clothes had been tagged for for removal, removal yeah. to the archives. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So um, anyway. So I think that's what leads people to believe that the, the imagineering. I mean, are the archives came in to remove Buzzy? But I think they would have done a better job of cutting the hydraulic uh, lines
1: to him. Yeah, who knows? I mean, it there. could have been uh, anyway. could have been trying to do it so quick to just get it all out of there that they screwed something up. So yeah, yeah. So
0: oh well. It'll be interesting to see what they do with those two show buildings cuz they're pretty large. Yes. So they're just going to tear them down or, or if they're going to be support for the play pavilion. Yeah. Or maybe they'll build something in them someday.
1: I'm, or they'll be storage. I'm <laughs> sure they were probably stripped and and they'll be used as like a a big interactive area that no one can actually interact in cuz we can't touch each other for a while. So No. But we'll have to see. <laughs> we'll see well, I don't know what kind of interaction you thought was going to go on in there. <laughs> not that kind of... We, we shouldn't be touching anything that other people just finished touching. Not necessarily yeah, each a other.
0: reality kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, all righty. Okay, the final one is well, it's probably the one that there's not a lot of information about, but it, it was a departure for Disney. And it, this is The Making of Me. And this is a 14-minute film in which Disney tackled the topic of sex education in a theme park attraction. Uh, Martin Short tells the story about how we are born by explaining how his parents were born, grew up, and met during the course of their lives at a college dance, you know, getting married, You know, going on their honeymoon, and having their first child. Now, originally, Short's parents were shown meeting at their high school prom, but Disney had second thoughts, and he didn't want to encourage high schoolers to get married. So they changed the setting to a college dance. The film also explains the process of fertilization between sperm and egg cells in an animated segment that lasts about 1 minute and 30 seconds, as well as fetal development by using imagery taken by Leonard Nilsson that had previously appeared in Nova's Miracle of Life um, television series. The importance of good prenatal care is also stressed at one point, the couple leaves a smoke-filled movie theater because they didn't want to expose their unborn baby to secondhand cigarette smoke. Uh, the film was directed, uh, written and directed by Glenn Gordon Caron and produced by Jay Daniel, with music by Bruce Broughton. And The Making of Me was a final element of The Fitness Fairground, opened on October 30th, 1969, and was dedicated on November 2, 1989, Due to the sensitive nature of the topic, an advisory sign was placed near the entrance to the theater to advise parents to decide whether the film is suitable for their children. And there was also an advisory um, right before the film would start as well Mm -hmm. about there being depictions of, um, you know, development and birth and all that. Um, Barry Braverman who was the show producer for the Wonders of Life Pavilion said Disney was well aware of the controversy that might ensue when it made the film and Braverman said in an interview with the Orlando Sentinel the goal was to produce an informative tasteful piece with a Disney touch. It's a cross between the technology of the science series Nova and the time travel theme of the movie Back to the Future Now in early version of the film focused on a particular couple, their marriage, their baby's conception, baby showers, and other personal experiences, and that was discarded in favor of a more universal approach, showing the relationship of any couple and the birth of any child. It's a way for the viewer to reconnect with the experience of being born, Broverman said. All of us have been children. Many of us will be parents. Some will be grandparents. That entire life cycle is shown in the making of me. But children might have left the film still wondering how a baby is made. The animated portion shows a sperm fertilizing an egg, but doesn't mention how the sperm got there. That's a topic for parents to deal with. (laughs) So... So, did you see uh, this film, Craig?
1: Yeah, I have. I had very little uh, memories of it. I've watched it a couple times over the years uh, on YouTube and such, and it's uh, it's not great. I mean, (laughs) Martin Short's perfectly charming in it uh, in the way he needs to to be, and yeah, it is a weird, like quasi Back to the Future kind of. style feel to it, but overall, I mean, it's... I I think the the place in history, like, for me, where it would stand is it's just that, like, it's that head-scratching moment where you're just like, why is... Why do we just have a movie that we're sitting here watching that doesn't really need to be here necessarily. Like it could have been a special that was extended and made out and played on Disney Channel or something if they really wanted to. It just it kind of kind of confusing why why it it needed to be there. Besides, I mean, I know it's the entire point of the pavilion was educational mm-hmm. on it, but it just yeah. I don't know. And that so- is a wonder of life how how we're born, how we're made and born. <laughs> yeah, it just feels like it's it was missing a small like there was an x factor that it was missing in all of it that just something something could have been added to take it over the edge and make it make it like a must see video when you go to 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 walt disney world but just didn't have it Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i I think for its era its time it was tastefully done and and they they were walking a tightrope that they um really wanted to stay on yeah i think for sure, and they, they, you know they didn't. They definitely didn't want to cross over. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Martin Short got as close as he could <laughs> to <Yeah>. it. <laughs> so, anyway, alrighty and that's it. That that those are the three main attractions that were in the Wonders of Life Pavilion. So, how wonderful! So, it's uh, definitely a <laughs> lot. A lot of good things about them. About but all of them.
1: Yeah no, uh, still Cranium Command is the best to me. And body Wars. If you were that ter- type of person who who liked it, then I'm I'm glad you liked it. And I hope you got to do it enough when you were you were there and it was there. But yeah, it's a it's it's a pavilion that I wish would have just been able to to keep up and maintain over the years.
0: Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I agree. Alrighty, well, speaking of keeping up, we'll see uh, now if Craig can keep up with what happens this week in Disney history. Okay, Craig, we are in the week of June 7th. Nice. Alrighty. Okay, so well, we're going to start out in Walt Disney World. So Walt Disney World announced an upgrade to an attraction on June 7, 2006 that was sure to delight Cinderella and her prince, along with Disney fans. What was this announcement?
1: Hmm. I'm going to... Considering Cinderella isn't really around outside besides her castle, I'm going to say maybe this was when they did the... um, when they did the suite inside, the Year of a Million Dreams suite. That's
0: that's right. That's right. The Cinderella Castle apartment, it was announced, will be completely decorated and upholstered as a royal bedchamber, which can sleep up to four people. It will become available as a a once-in-a-lifetime experience, as you said, during the Year of a Million Dreams celebration taking place at all 11 Disney theme parks. An overnight stay in the apartment will be a prize randomly awarded to a guest at the Magic Kingdom or any park at the Walt Disney World Resort. Did you know anybody that won this prize?
1: I haven't known anyone who's won the prize, but my sister had got to go up into it I think twice while she worked at um, Bibbidi Boppity Boutique inside the, oh. the castle so uh, it's I, I, I haven't been lucky enough to be up there yet but maybe one day I really want to go up there you think uh, with the number of
0: cast members that listen to this show you think that the next time I'm there <laughs> we could uh, we could somehow get into that dream suite so. It's a dream. It would be a dream come true for you and me. <laughs> okay. All right. June 8th. On June 8th, 1962, a new company begins sponsorship of Disneyland's Rocket to the Moon attraction. The sponsorship will last until 1966. What is the name of the company who's sponsoring it?
1: Mm-hmm. I know it, it started out as... TWA, I think. Mhm. Did it go to Boeing maybe? You're very close. Um So that means I'm not right, but I'm close. I'm not it's not coming to me right now. It was Douglas Aircraft. Oh. So the The
0: rocket's familiar TWA logo that had been on there since 1955 has been replaced with blue vertical stripes and large red uppercase letters spelling Douglas. And the sponsorship will last until 1966, when an American aerospace manufacturer based in Long Beach, California, Douglas will later merge with McDonnell Aircraft, who will continue sponsoring the updated flight of the moon in 1967 as McDonnell Douglas.
1: I kind of got out there eventually. It mm-hmm. would have taken some time. Taken, not token. That's not a word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, June 9th.
0: The Disney Channel debuts a series spotlighting different Disney artists and performers. This episode is about Clarence Ducky Nash, the voice of Donald Duck. Narrated by Buddy Epson, there will be 20 half-hour episodes in all. This show will be nominated for two Cable Ace Awards in Best Informational Series category, and later spark the idea for Disney Legend Awards. What is the name of this series?
1: I think it's the one that we've talked about uh, many times over the years, and uh, one of your favorites, the um, mm-hmm. the Family Album right the disney family
0: album this is the best thing the disney channel ever did <laughs> <laughs> and i so want this to be on uh on disney plus desperately it is so good and it's on youtube i don't know how people recorded it back in the day i guess with their eight millimeter
1: cameras or something but um anyway but um they probably had vhs tapes that they recorded it on and then i guess i didn't know if they had vhs even back in those days this is in the 80s so maybe rich people would have had it and if not beta max at the same time too and then from there it's just i mean it would it's one of those things that they would have had to just sit on them for the longest time until people really started digitizing Tapes and then have the motivation to be like, oh, I wonder if I have any tapes yeah. with any random stuff yeah. on. I it. mean, I, yeah, I mean, I know this would
0: be a nightmare. I'm sure to get go to all the estates, yeah, and get approval. But oh, this is such a gem. I, I look for it on YouTube all the time, yeah. but um, to see because there there are quite a few of them out there. Yeah, so. Okay, anyway, June 10th, Thelma Howard, the Disney family's live-in housekeeper and cook for 30 years, beginning in 1951 at the age of 38, passes away just shy of her 80th birthday on June 10th, 1994. Walt often referred to her as the real-life Mary Poppins. What was her nickname?
1: Oh, I know we've talked about it before, but I do not remember. It's foo, foo. And that was given to her by the grandson, Chris Disney Miller,
0: because he couldn't say Thelma when Uh, he was a little boy. And as a housekeeper for the Disney family, she received a few shares of Disney stock as a Christmas gift, as well as for birthdays and other special events. She lived very frugally throughout her life, apparently not knowing the rising value of the stock, that had made her a multi-millionaire at the time of her death hmm. her shares were valued at just under 9 million dollars that's wild Cause she thought it would show a lack of loyalty to the Disney family if she sold any so yeah. so half of it went to her son who is um, he, he was in a home for um, developmentally disabled um young adults, and uh, the rest of it went to a charity for um, for children. That's nice. So, yeah. um, for sick and I think like homeless children and stuff like that. So, that's still running today.
1: That's heartwarming.
0: Yeah. Okay, um, June 11th. On June 11th, 2010, two attractions at Disney California Adventure officially debuted. The attractions are in close proximity to each other. What are the names of these attractions?
1: Well, I think one of them is World of color
0: mm-hmm very good
1: and but that leaves one more.
0: okay, I'll give you a hint. this is a refurbished uh, refurbished attraction. the tree opening
1: um. Is it the one like the little drop thing that was next to the? Um... Wow, I'm doing great jobs at explaining at the, the Maliboomer or jumping jellyfish. The jumping jellyfish, something.
0: yeah. Yeah, no, you're close. It's next to that. I think it's the Silly Symphony swings. Oh, what was it
1: before? It was it was orange. Oh, that orange stinger. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right, yeah. yeah. I mean I never saw it in person. I, I can picture it perfectly now though.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it of course the um the Symphony Silly Symphony swings is themed at Disney's the band concert. It features conductor Mickey Mouse conducting the attraction from high atop. And this is like a, one of those wave swinger attractions. Yeah. Although technically the band concert is not part of the Silly Symphony series. The name has been applied to the attraction due to its symphony storyline. And then, of course, World of Color, a spectacular display of water and special effects. It features more than 1,000 jets of water, which form incredible shapes in time to music, allowing Disney characters to come to life on a shimmering veil of mist. So, both are great attractions.
1: Although, I've never been on Silly Symphony Swings because I'm worried it'll make me sick. I have not either, but just because I've seen that video of the. One that was like at a, a small park that broke and crashed down on everyone. Oh so, dear! Yeah. Well, I have not seen that. I'm just worried
0: I'll vomit and it'll whirl around in everyone's faces I, as we go. You
1: know, twirling. <laughs> I wish I wish my my not wanting to ride it was because of something simple like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, June twelfth. At Disneyland,
0: a futuristic attraction opened on June 12th, 1957. What is the name of this attraction? Oh, um, any hints? Uh, It's a walkthrough attraction. It provides a glimpse of living in the future.
1: I'm just going to take a guess, and I'm going to say the the Monsanto house.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Monsanto House of the Future opens in Tomorrowland, and it'll be there until December 1967. That was fun to walk through. My mother really liked that attraction. I think she was fascinated by the kitchen. I love walk-through attractions. Mm -hmm. Okay, June 13th. California added a little more excitement to the star-studded red carpet opening of the new Cars Land at the Disneyland Resort on June thirteenth, twenty twelve.
1: What took place during the opening ceremony? I I know we've talked about this one before too. Um, It was a it was an earthquake. That's right. A 4.1 earthquake in Yorba Linda. It shook parts of Southern
0: California on this evening and added a little extra unexpected excitement for the premiere party for Cars Land at Disney California Adventure. Uh, A 4.1, most Californians wouldn't have even noticed it. Um, A 2.4 magnitude aftershock is reported a few minutes after the main quake. And this new land will open to the public on Friday, June 15th. Did you cover the opening... Of Carsland?
1: No. Because I know
0: was, you were there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I was I started in um I started in August of twenty twelve. So it was just a little bit okay. before me. So that was um that was at that event was Tom and Dustin. Okay. Yeah. That's who I saw there then. Yeah. So, not that I
0: could go into it, (laughs) but um, I was there that day, and I was trying to remember, who did I see from there? So, from the team.
1: Yeah. Okay. Whoops. That is it. You did pretty well. Yeah, not too bad.
0: Well, Craig you know we sort of touched on this before we did the history segment but do you think if another sponsor had been found who's willing to invest in keeping wonders of life updated could these attractions and the pavilion remained relevant in the 21st century
1: i honestly don't think so um i especially because a lot like with with youtube and other technology even just cable making like documentaries uh more and more prevalent i just feel like i feel like nothing that was happening at wonders of life quite had that 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 oomph to take it to the next level Mm -hmm. like it didn't have that that test track excitement to it it didn't have that with with uh with mission space even though space is highly covered and it, it didn't have that extra addition to it to make it slightly more interesting it just the wonders of life to me was missing that's something to keep it sustainable and let it have legs so I, I think they would have had to completely rehaul it in order to uh to really make it something better than what it was which was one attraction that made a lot of people sick, and then mostly, mostly movies. Essentially, mm-hmm. even even something like Cranium Command that had other elements to it, it was it was essentially a movie. It was just it needed something something else, and I think maybe it could have stood the test of time.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Now, with um, us having access to so many documentaries and videos on all of the topics that are covered in Wonders of Life. And even some of the other pavilions um, at the time. I'm wondering if that helped bring about the downfall of future world. Is all that
1: information is accessible now in, you know, our, our living rooms? Yeah, I I think that's a huge reason. Honestly, it's just it, if you don't have that something special to make it to make it stand out. Then that's then it just can't really stand unless it's something like like the seas where, you know, it you do have this massive massive aquarium that you can show off, but even that's not, you know, that's not even that impressive. So they kind of went the other route and just made it as entertaining as possible and made it as little about actually educating yourself as they could. So it's just mm-hmm. it, it's it, Time definitely had a way to creep up on all of Future World and will continue to to creep up on Future World until it's completely changed from what, what we know it as now.
0: Yeah, to the bold new concept mm-hmm. that they're turning it into. Although I don't know what the bold new concept is, but because um, I haven't figured out what is the thread that's hanging it all together. But, yeah, but it definitely future world is definitely passing into um, history. Yes. So.
1: We'll find out more in 2031. <laughs> oh, well, hopefully I'm around to see it. <laughs> All right.
0: Well, I referred to several books, articles, and websites during my research for this episode, including... Uh, the Epcot Explorers Encyclopedia: A Guide to Walt Disney World's Greatest Theme Park by R. A. Peterson. Um, websites: There are some articles I looked at. The Story of Body Wars by Jim Corcus for Mouse Planet. Cranium Command by Jim Corcus for Your First Visit um, Also, some other sites like Theme Park Tourist, WDW News Today, Laughing Place, and then a couple of articles out of the. Um, orlando sentinel's um, vaults there so craig until
1: next time where can our listeners connect with you on the dis unplugged network of shows as always you can find me on the various shows that i'm on in this network from uh, the walt disney world edition show to the universal edition and beyond and then as always you can find me on social media on facebook twitter and instagram at Teleclaster. Michael. What about and, you? And, and you're learning Spanish. You're learning Spanish to be on C um, Disney Unplugged, right? Uh, uh, C Disney. Um, C Disney. <laughs> no, I uh, I took I took a year of Spanish when I was in high school, and it was. Uh, it's a language that fascinates me, and I just to me it just did not click in my head so uh when when we're ready to make uh ja disney the german version of uh the <laughs> dis i will i will be there waiting so
0: oh good well if we make an ancient latin one i'm in i can work <laughs> with you on that okay <laughs> Okay, you can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio is Imagineers in Disneyland. Check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneylandPlug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our shows and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That it was all started by a man. Walt Disney and his brother Roy.